Welcome to Season 6 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started in this episode, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all those of you that have subscribed, listened to and downloaded the podcast. It means the world to know that there are teachers across the globe that are finding these resources useful. So thank you. Today I have the great privilege of introducing you to a friend of mine, Greg Atwells. He's an incredible thinker, innovator and change agent. He is the founder of an amazing organisation called Creatable. The mission of Creatable began with the underrepresentation of girls in STEM. Their goal was to ignite a passion for creative technology in young women by helping them to use technology as a tool to solve problems and express their creativity. The organisation has undergone many iterations since then and currently collaborates with global companies to shape the future of work, transferring lessons and ideas from industry to improve the way we teach and learn. I hope that you get as much out of our discussion as I did. Greg, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks uh, so much for having a chat with me. Uh, how are you going? Doing well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Is it school holidays for you yet? I shouldn't really say school holidays. The world thinks it's a holiday for teachers, but really it's just a time to catch up on admin. Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined with that. Like I try and spend okay. the first, um, at least the first week not doing anything school related, but yeah, I was pretty unsuccessful at that this, uh, these holidays. But uh, uh, Greg, quite uh, possibly the most important uh, question of the interview, what's your uh, coffee order or drink of choice? Um, my drink of choice uh, depends on the time of day. So right. if it is in the day, I'll yep. have a long black. If it's at night time, uh, a whiskey uh, never uh, ceases to disappoint. Nice, nice one. And uh, is there a book uh, or books that have uh, caused you to stop and uh, reconsider <clears throat> things? It could be professionally, personally. Uh, it's completely up to you. Yeah, I think my all-time favourite book would be the only book I've ever read more than once, mm-hmm. and that is uh, A Tale of Three Kings by Gene okay. Edwards. Interesting. And what's the thesis of that for those people that are not familiar with it? Um, it basically looks at three different types of leaders. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, so I don't know, uh, kind of, I'm sure everyone's heard of maybe maybe King David uh, in kind of ancient uh, Jewish history, um, but looks at King Saul, King David, and then David's son Absalom as a, as a pro- portrait or profile of three different types of leaders and the relationship between them. Uh, and I think it's a really great book in terms of asking important questions of what kind of leader do you want to become. Nice. And I'll make sure I'll put all of the things that we talk about in the show notes so people can uh, check that out. I haven't read that one, uh, but I will be uh, ordering it uh, pretty soon. These interviews are proven quite expensive because I get some people yeah. <laughs> out of it. Um, if you could have a dinner party with anybody there uh, who would be there, your wonderful family, uh, get a free seat at the table, but who else would you uh, would you invite? Okay, I'm glad you said that because the answer was going to be my wife and kids. Uh, I, I couldn't really uh, imagine uh, having a dinner party kind of without them there. Yep. Um, but I think in terms of other people that I find interesting, um, 
my favourite, uh, I've got a couple of favourite maybe athletes that I wouldn't mind having a chat to. So a guy called Christian Blumenfeld, who's the uh, world triathlon champion at the moment, mm-hmm. and Kelly Slater, who's maybe the goat of uh, professional surfing, um, greatest of all time, uh, is, a, is, is what goat means uh, for anyone wondering. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, I think I think um, maybe some world leaders uh, at the event. So I have a lot of respect for Jacinda Ardern. Um, yeah. I think she's very compelling uh, as a leader. And then, um, you know what? I'm going to go two of my favourite uh, actors. Uh, I'm a big Kevin Costner fan yeah. as well as an Emily Blunt fan. So maybe those two. It sounds like a uh, sounds like a great uh, great dinner party. Yeah, um, we'll talk about your um, experience at a conference uh, with uh, Prime Minister um, Arden a little later. Um, that is that's a whole podcast on itself. Uh, <laughs> we'll definitely loop back to that. Um, uh, Greg, uh, what was your uh, upbringing like, and what are you most grateful for from your parents? Yeah, so um, I was like a national level swimmer growing up. So uh, I trained with Ian Thorpe was on a swimming scholarship at high school. Um, my upbringing uh, by nature was very performance oriented and I spent a lot of time training uh, before and after school. Um, so I didn't have a lot of time really to get into trouble. Um, so I was a pretty good kid. Um, I was also raised by a single mum, so who did a tremendous job of giving my sister and I every opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of what I'm most grateful for, uh, in, in terms of my mum, she really showed me, uh, I guess, by how she lived her life, that there's no point in waiting around to get picked by someone. You know, you, it's best to just get amongst it and create opportunities by actually doing something. Yeah. Um, and that kind of phrase comes to mind, you know, you can only steer a moving ship. Um, so kind of get moving, get going, start doing something. Yeah. Uh, and then things kind of unfold from there. So that was more than advice. That was how she lived her life. And I saw right. her do that um, in a way that, you know, created a ton of opportunities for my sister and I when she was raising us on her own. And that's really sort of stayed stayed with me. Fantastic. And how has that uh, impact your own approach to parenting? I know your um, daughter is a state swimmer. Um, and so a lot of your go- your work probably gets done at four or five o'clock in the morning. Are there yeah. any other things, any other ways that your upbringing has impacted your approach to parenting and also? Yeah, yeah, look, I mean, maybe to get a little bit deep for a second, I think... Um, the interview, it's uh, yeah. five minutes think, we're getting deep. And uh, I think um, a, a father's absence is just as uh, powerful and significant as a father's presence. Um, and so I, I grew up um, with uh, with an absent father, um, and that absence was very significant. You know, it took a, a fair bit of heavy lifting in the counselling room to to heal some of those wounds. And so, um, I, I think as a as a parent, it's made me really wholehearted in my commitment just to be present and available for my kids. Um, um, not just to be there, but here, if that makes sense. Um, and I think I think there's a lot of a lot of power in what that looks like day to day. So you're right. I, I spend a lot of time, uh, particularly with my oldest daughter, driving her to swimming training at some ungodly hour of the morning. So four 
4.15 uh, we wake up every day. Um, and so we get a lot of time together in the car and I just try and be super present and interested uh, yeah. in her and, and what she cares about, um, what she wants to want to, what wants to want to talk about. So um, yeah, that, that's influenced me a lot. Yeah. And I think being present is, uh, is so important. And I think something that I have really struggled with, I mean, it's, it's very easy even now to think about the other things that you got to do, you know, you got the bills to pay and the rego to pay for and the, kitchen to clean but I think it's um it's a discipline I think I'm getting better at uh, which is uh to try and be in the moment and um yeah being a parent's hard it's tough because you wouldn't say sorry I shouldn't say it's tough it's 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 by far the hardest thing I've ever done uh but also by far the most the most rewarding and so uh, any advice on uh, how to raise girls as they get older please uh Please let me know. I got two of them, and I'm, we're still trying to work it out. Um, so, uh, is there something that you've you've changed your mind about um, most recently? Yeah. Look, I mean, oh, what comes to mind is um, I would call myself uh, a feminist now. Um, it's 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 not that I never was. Uh, I was just indifferent to yeah. um, to it when I was younger, yeah. um, and I think a combination of seeing my own like the tenacity and consistency of my mum, kind of turning up every day. Um, I got myself kind of better educated by going to uni, and I really loved all the um, the art subjects and uh, and particularly ones that grappled with things like um, you know gender theory and all that. Yeah. Um, and then I married a, a really strong woman uh, for myself. And I think all of those things kind of caused me to become much more aware than I was. Yeah. And then I had two daughters, which which obviously made um, gender inequality quite, quite personal, um, brought it close to home. So I guess you could say I've evolved in my thinking uh, to the point where I would, I genuinely believe that gender equality isn't just a woman's issue it's a human issue and I have as a man I've got a role to play in that absolutely absolutely I, I couldn't agree more and thank you for uh thank you for your honesty um Greg uh what were you like at school and I know you mentioned a little bit about that but what were you like at school and also was there a uh, a teacher or teachers that have had or that had an impact on your life yeah look everyone remembers their favorite teacher don't they um they do, yeah uh, so before I get to her, um, at school, um, like I was a good kid. I was, I was pretty like enthusiastic, um, up for learning. Um, I, I got bored quite easily, you know, if I, if I, if I wasn't, um, being stretched or pushed, um, I would get bored and, and tend to sort of check out, you know, so I, I wasn't like a super amazing performing kind of student but I, I, I was definitely pretty capable um, and then yeah obviously sport uh, played a big big role um, and was was a big part of the reason you know I was on a scholarship at, at school for swimming and all that sort of stuff um, but I guess it brings me to my favorite teacher uh, her name was uh, Mrs Ford uh, Elizabeth Ford she was my year 11 and 12 music teacher. I went to Innerborough High School uh, down here in the Sutherland Shire. And um, Mrs. Ford, um, like I, I only started learning music late uh, in school. Um, 
uh, all my mates were good musos. They were part of a band and I guess I just wanted to do what they could do. And, and so I decided to do music in year 11, even though I couldn't really play an instrument. It was going to be my, the subject that I dropped. Um, and I, I, I found myself really enjoying it, but I was by far the worst in the class uh, at the skill um, comparative to the other students. But my teacher, Mrs. Ford, she just, she never made me feel like an imposter. I always felt like I belonged in that room. And she encouraged me to just go at my own pace um, and, and uh, kind of, you know, walk my own path. And she helped, She obviously saw something in me and helped me see it as well. So I would say that she really ignited my own belief in myself that, that I was a creative person and that I could, um, I could actually learn how to get good at this, you know. Uh, and so that, that influenced the trajectory of my life. Um, I finished school and I spent all, all my 20s and, and it, early 30s, um, you know, writing songs, releasing albums, playing in different bands. Like it's, it's been a massive part of my life. And so, um, you know, you talk about teachers and the role that they play in, in changing the trajectory of young lives. I would say Mrs. Ford really set me on a different trajectory. Yeah. Have you uh, had the opportunity to thank Mrs. Ford? Yes, on more than one occasion. I think I've maybe thanked her too much now, yeah. um, but I've definitely made it known uh, yeah. uh, the role that she played um, in my education uh, and then my, you know, development as a person. Yeah, that, that's so that's so important. And I had the, the huge privilege of interviewing that teacher for me, uh, Mrs. Taylor Jones. Uh, she was on the podcast a little while ago. And, um, yeah, it's really hard to put into words what great teachers do and I didn't tell her this but I have no idea what she taught me in her year three class like I don't remember if it was about I don't know the area of 2d shapes or whatever that may be but I remembered how she made me feel when I was yeah. in the classroom and was that similar to Mrs Ford like did she have a presence did she have an ability to speak into your life or what was the, yeah how did she make you feel when you were in a class yeah, it's a really good um, distinction. Uh, I have I have more to say on that in a second. But in terms of how Mrs. Ford made me feel, um, I, I, I sort of touched on it before. I, I guess I always I always felt like I belonged. So so here's the thing. Um, I didn't feel like I needed to fit in, but I always felt like I belonged. Yeah. So, and I think that's an important distinction. Like we don't, we don't want to create, um, you know, like the, like we don't want everyone to be the same. We want people to be unique and to bring their uniqueness to the table. Um, and so I didn't feel this pressure that I needed to be like everyone else in the class and that I could be myself and that I could be different um, and bring my uniqueness to the table. But in that, in that, in that same breath, I always felt like I just belonged there. Um, mm. And I think, I think it's an interesting um, tension to manage is, you know, how do we encourage difference and diversity and uniqueness um, whilst maintaining an environment um, of, of, of belonging, you know? Uh, and I think that was just so powerful because I felt like I belonged, everything else, like I was, I was engaged, you know? Um, I wanted to be there. I found learning easier. I was able to bounce back from failure 
more quickly because I just felt like I belonged in that classroom. And yeah, um, yeah. it's a funny too, because uh, a book I read um, called Integrity by Dr. Henry Cloud talks about whenever we move through an organization, we leave a wake behind us. And yeah. just like a boat leaves like two ripples of water, like the wake behind us, we leave a task wake and a relational wake. Wow. And the task wake is like, what did I accomplish? Like, what did I do while I was there? Like, what did I get done? And the relational wake is how did I make people feel? Yeah. Um, and some of us are good at, you know, I'm more task oriented, you know, and there are people out there that are more, you know, people oriented. And so we definitely swing more to one than the other, but it's really important that we're mindful of both wakes. And I think you're exactly right. Um, when we remember back to our education and we remember the teachers that had a big impact on us, um, it's actually less about the content uh, and the information. We don't really retain that, but we definitely remember how they made us feel. And I think that that part of teaching deserves extra special focus. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And some of these things are really hard to measure i think in some ways our industry is obsessed with measurement and impact and that's those important but how do you measure these little things i mean how do you measure the impact that someone like mrs ford had on your life and i think it's hugely um important and speaking of incredible individuals uh tell me about the social good summit in australia and uh if you look on your website which i'll put uh links into uh, i'll put into the show notes is a picture of you and then there's a, a picture of uh, the amazing uh, Jacinda Ardern. So what was that like? And yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so um, it was actually over in New York. Um, so the Social Good Summit kicks off the United Nations General Assembly every year. Um, and in 2018, I was asked to speak uh, at the Social Good Summit um, on why more diversity in tech means bigger futures for everyone. Um, that was a big focus of Creatable, which is the organisation I lead. That was a big focus of ours at the time. Uh, how do we get more young women um, pursuing technology uh, pathways? Um, and, uh, yeah, had the opportunity to travel to New York 2018 um, and speak at the United Nations General Assembly um, and Jacinda spoke just before me. Uh, so we actually had a chat in the green room uh, just uh, as she came off stage um, and I was on kind of just after her. Uh, so that was, yeah, a, a pretty incredible opportunity um, uh, and a big part, I guess, of, um, I mean, I spoke before about, you know, how I've kind of come to become somewhat of a feminist um, uh, as I've gotten older and I think a, a, a lot of the time I get to speak uh, to people, it ends up being about, um, you know, how we can um, overcome bias with intentional positive action um, and, uh, yeah, it's just a privilege and an opportunity to, to be able to have the opportunity to, to, to speak about it in any context, but that was that was pretty fun getting to go over there. You talk a lot, obviously a lot about music education and then your uh, involvement in Creative Future and tech and engaging women and uh, female creative technologists. Like there seems to be, 
it seems to be two disciplines that I would not expect to put together, which is music and creativity and tech. And, and tell me about some of the parallels between some of those two disciplines and, and how one potentially serves the other. Yeah, well, I think um, what well, I, I, I started Creatable in uh, the beginning of 2017 and we began specifically uh, and originally to address the gender disparity in tech. Um, so we began by essentially building out a, a, a creative technology education program for high school girls. Yeah. Um, and that saw me, uh, like I'm, I'm not a, a professional or qualified uh, teacher. Like I have a master's level of education, but not in education. So yeah. I did a comms degree and then I did a, a master's in organizational leadership. Um, but, but I haven't come from kind of, you know, school land. I'm not a chalky by trade. Um, uh, and, I, and I found myself wanting though to lean into this problem of how do we ignite a passion for creative technology in young women? Because I saw that the world needed that problem to be solved. Um, and, uh, you know, just getting amongst it um, and spending a lot of time trying to get and hold the attention of 15 year old girls in uh, high schools for sort of three to four years, like myself personally, I realized that um, two of the biggest barriers for young women uh, getting into technology were they didn't think it was cool and they didn't think they could do it. So there was a, there was a relevance um, gap and there was a, there was a, there was a capability gap. Like, like they didn't, they didn't think that it was relevant to them. Like you talk about something like coding, a lot of young women were like, I just don't see how this is relevant to me or my future. Yeah. And then, and, and then they felt like they needed to be geniuses in order to do it. So it felt really inaccessible. And so a, a big part of like our philosophy around teaching this was that context is everything. Um, so teaching the skill, say something like coding, without context uh, or without the context it's being used in basically makes the skill feel irrelevant. Um, yeah. And so we had great success teaching technology in the context of creativity. Um, and in the context of industry. So for example, it's my belief that coding, for example, is a way to express my creativity, uh, just like playing the guitar is, yeah. you know, yeah. or, 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 you know, um, doing a painting or, or any, any sort of, you know, any, when we think of creativity, we think of the arts, um, uh, but it's my belief that technology is just a tool that we can use to express our creativity. So that, that was a big part of, of how we taught uh, tech. We, we dropped words like STEM, they sounded boring, and instead we replaced them with phrases like creative technology because we believed it was creativity first with right. technology in pursuit. And then the other key part to context is, um, you know, how is it being used how is this skill being used in the real world? And so, for example, like understanding how a company like Spotify is using data to personalize music playlists and influence what you listen to um, means that maybe these equations that I'm learning in maths could cause me to work on algorithms that bring creativity and technology together in music. Right. And so what's something that felt, what's felt boring at first by, by, by teaching it in context of not only creativity, but also industry, all of a sudden it's way more relevant, 
way more interesting, way more engaging. And that's essentially what Creatables always tried to do. And then so then you start to see, well, I've obviously got this kind of creative part to who I am that gets expressed, not just in music, but also just in general problem solving. Like I like solving hard problems um, uh, and have spent my career doing so. And then as I've lent more and more into education, um, it's 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 showing that, you know, all this, all, like these technology is just a tool. Um, uh, the, the, the higher order skill here is creativity. That's really what we need to be cultivating. Um, and because uh, the skills, the, the tools come and go, like they change. Like you could spend all, all year teaching a certain coding program or in a, in a specific language and then, you know, in three years' time, it's irrelevant because everyone's coding in a different language now, you know, and it's, it's like the, 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 the tools come and go, but it's, it's that, you know, it's the higher order stuff, the, the creativity, being evaluative, being reflective, being imaginative, being curious. That's the stuff that's way more interesting to me. And I think all teachers already value it. And yeah. that's what we want to really focus on cultivating. Yeah, and look, there's so much, there's so much in that, Greg. It's almost a, a whole another episode in itself. Well, it definitely is. It's a whole series uh, on creativity. Greg, we're we're pretty obsessed with with measurement in education. And um, do you think we should be measuring creativity, or and, and if we we if we are, how do we how do we do such a thing? Yeah, you're um you're touching on uh, a pretty hot topic, I reckon, um, and that is um. You know, are we measuring what we value or are we valuing what we measure? Um, in education today, there is a high level of measurement for things like literacy, numeracy, attendance and behaviour. Um, this is super useful and important, but we all know as educators that there's much more to education than that. Yeah. Um, and so the question becomes, well, how do we measure the other things that we value uh, as teachers? And I guess you could say that we're at, we at Credible are on a journey to discover maybe what else we should be measuring yeah. and how we should measure it in an accessible and, object, and objective way. Um, and the more that we work with um, successful uh, industry partners, so like big kind of global, like we're working with people like Atlassian and Meta, Spotify and Lego, um, the more we work with companies like this, the more evident it becomes that there are a set of kind of global capabilities or, or, or skills um, that um, they are wanting in people that they're employing. Um, uh, and, you know, yeah, as, as, as students leave school, um, they need kind of global skills to solve yeah. global problems. And so, you know, what are these skills? Um, and then how do we measure them? And so we actually have uh, an, an hypothesis here. Um, we uh, base all of our professional learning uh, around four skill development themes and eight skills. Um, so our four themes are um, truth in the new world is one of them, which is all around data, bias, and managing information. And the two skills that sit under that are evaluative and influential. Um, uh, the next one is navigating future complexity. That's the theme, uh, which is all around kind of problem solving, creativity, and thinking critically. And the and the two specific skills that sit under that are being imaginative and curious. Um, 
The third theme is uh, overcoming contextual cop-out and other convenient excuses. Um, and that's all around like uh, self-awareness, active listening and responding to context. Yeah. And the two skills that sit under that are being reflective, but also persevering. Yeah. Um, and then the last theme is action for a better tomorrow. So em empathy, equity, saving the world. And, and the two skills that sit under that are compassionate and just. And so if I said to you, when our, our students leave school, we want them to be more evaluative, more influential, more imaginative, more curious, more reflective, more persevering, more compassionate and, and, and more just. Everyone would agree, you know, like they're things that we already value and yeah. they're the things that these big companies are looking for when they're hiring people. Um, but they're things that are, that are, are challenging to measure um, and we don't really have uh, a, a way to measure these things uh, that's accessible and objective at the moment. And that's a big project of ours. We are working on building an assessment tool that measures some of these qualities or attributes at the moment because we believe that they're important. And if we can empower schools with a way to baseline um, uh, and then kind of measure improvement in these skills, um, they start to become uh, a bigger part of the conversation uh, and a bigger priority uh, yeah. kind of in the educational landscape. Yeah, it, it's super exciting, exciting, Greg. And I think that these are essential conversations that that schools should be having. And I love that you are not from an educational background, but yet you are still asking these questions of schools because I, love, I think one of the things that has been missing for so long is that partnership between our education systems and also um, private entities outside of that. And I love that you're partnering with some some huge names um, to really build those skills. And I'm particularly uh, love that there's a focus on empowering women. I think that's incredibly yeah. important. Um, sorry, Greg. Yep. Well, I was just going to say, well, you know, like to, to, to actually use some educational literature here, like mm -hmm. John Hattie, you know, what works best in education. He says that for professional learning communities to be effective, they need to continually focus on improving student outcomes yeah. and include experts who will challenge entrenched beliefs. Love that. And I think that's a, a big part of our ethos um, at Creatable is we want to introduce some experts into the conversation who will challenge entrenched beliefs um, of educators. Um, and so much of PL at the moment lives and dies inside the education bubble. You know, you've got we learn from educators about educational literature on how to educate better. Um, and so Creatable wants to look maybe where others aren't um, or maybe where others don't have time to look, um, which is industry, um, and go, well, what, what makes these big companies so successful and how can we apply that to teaching and learning in order to better prepare students for success after school? And so that's, that's kind of the space that we're wanting to play in. Um, and yeah, I think it's really important that, 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 that we include those experts who will maybe challenge those entrenched beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, Greg. And I just wonder if you would mind having a quick chat about um, initiating change and what are some of the uh, challenges? <laughs> I know that my industry is uh, um, particularly particularly slow when it comes to change. So how do we do this in a way that is done um, effectively uh, and in a way that takes everyone 
uh, along the journey with us. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about it, change in environments that are highly structured, accountable and regulated, um, it's, it's very, it's, it's almost dangerous to try and change too quickly in these sorts of environments because they're not built for rapid iteration. Um, change kind of has to be slow, uh, which means that it's probably not worth trying to change peripheral things that don't really make a difference over the long term. Yeah. Um, if you're going to commit uh, as an institution uh, to the journey of, well, uh, uh, maybe change isn't the best word. Like when I think of maybe sustainable change, I think of the word transformation. Um, uh, and so, you know, if you're going to commit to that journey of transformation, I think you've got to look at things that, that live and breathe at the yeah. belief, at the belief level, not just the behavior level. Um, beliefs shape culture and then culture shapes behavior and so we've got to make sure that we're transforming at our most fundamental level which is what we believe and so i would encourage um anyone listening uh that that if you're leading change within an ecosystem within a complex ecosystem you first have to change what you believe as a school uh, and then the cultural and behavioral behavioural change that you need will, will kind of follow suit. Mm. Um, but a lot of the time we don't really address what we believe. We yeah. focus on behavioural things and then it becomes um, yeah. really hard to implement because not everyone's kind of really bought into it uh, and is kind of coming along for the journey. Yeah, that's so true. And it, it, I uh, recently did an interview with uh, Professor Vivian Robinson and she is phenomenal and she was talking about the difference between change and improvement and I think sometimes we uh, get a little obsessed with change because it feels good to be able to be doing something but <laughs> sometimes we can lose the focus on what is going to be the thing that actually improves I mean we can redecorate a classroom or we can laminate this and do that and redo our seating but is that the thing that's actually going to drive yeah improvement and um well, it, 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 it's because it, at the end of the day, like that sort of change, like transformation, it requires a shift in thinking or mindset. Mm. It's, it's more than just like adapting to context or to a crisis. Like this is, this is learning to think from a totally different premise or paradigm. And so that's hard enough, like for one person to do. But imagine how challenging that then becomes when an organization or a collective group of people has to kind of go on that journey. Yeah. Um, and I think like I've, I've heard a phrase um, around leading change um, called con like concentric circles of influence. Yeah. Um, and so uh, and our head of operations at Creatable does this so well. Um, basically um, announcing shifts or changes um, or, uh, in concentric circles of influence. So maybe starting with a small kind of executive group um, and kind of getting them to really hash it out and buy in. Um, and then from there going to a, a group that's maybe a little wider uh, in, in, in reach and influence and then doing the same thing there. And then from there kind of going again. So every time you go to a, to a new group of people and try and lead them through um, a shift in thinking or, or some sort of change, You've already got an influential group that's advocating and on your side 
um, for, for what you're trying to do. Um, and I think that's really important. It slows the process down, but ensures that there's kind of commitment and buy-in um, uh, every time uh, stuff kind of gets um, put on the table to be discussed. Uh, and so rather than just kind of, you know, announcing that this is this is what's happening, this is where we're going, everyone get on board, like that, that doesn't really work anymore. I don't know if it ever did, um, but we relied on it a lot in the past. Yeah, it, it seems like things like psychological safety and trust and um, self-reflection and all of these things which we talk about are uh, absolutely essential when it comes yeah. to building culture of change. Yeah, there's a really good book called um, The Five Dysfunctions of Team by Patrick Lencioni. Um, yeah. Yeah, and he, he talks about the, the, the core or foundational dysfunction of any team um, is the absence of trust. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, when there's an absence of trust, you have a group of people that can't be vulnerable um, and therefore, you know, you can't really have productive conflict. Like yeah. there's an artificial harmony that happens. And then because there's an artificial harmony, there isn't really any um, buy-in um, uh, on, on, on decisions because no one's really hashing yeah. it out. No one's feeling heard. Because of that, um, there's not a, a healthy culture of accountability. Um, people get more concerned with things like status over like results for the team. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, yeah, then it just kind of goes from there. So it all kind of stems from this idea of how do we create a team or a culture or an ecosystem where there's trust, um, you know, and that, I think that's fundamentally important. Yeah. yeah. So uh, practically, how do you, uh, try to do that um, at um, Credible Future? How do you try and create these opportunities where you can build trust but also have um, opportunities for productive conflict? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I think trust is highly relational in nature. Um, and I would say that it, it gets strengthened um, with intangibles uh like character um so if you're like you need to spend time with people like you need to actually invest into the person um it, it can't just be about the work um people need to know that you believe in them and that you're for them and that you want them to succeed and that it's uh, that it's safe for them to to take risks and 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 for things to not go to plan and for that to be okay um so that's really important but then like if, if you're not if you're not operating uh in a way that is kind of of good character like if you're over promising and under delivering uh or if you're not doing what you said you were going to do like if there are sort of deficits there in terms of character that will erode trust within a team. Yeah. And so it's kind of this combination of, of relationship and character yeah. um, that I think kind of builds builds trust within a team. Um, and yeah, both both those things need to be given attention. Yeah. So for me, I'm highly task oriented. Um, I'm one of those people that if we start talking, I'm straight to business, like let's kind of talk about kind of what, what needs to happen and what needs to get done. But I've had to really evolve over the years, um, particularly in my role as, as the leader, to, to, to invest a lot more time on cultivating um, 
kind of authentic relationships um, and actually spending time with my team in a way that really focuses on them and invests into them as people. Um, And, and yeah, I think, I think that's really important when it comes to building trust. So if we were to get somebody from a credible future uh, on the line, uh, what do you think they would say about your leadership and the culture of that place being very, very vulnerable at the moment? Yeah. um, What they would say, I think, I reckon we've got a pretty good um, sort of fabric of trust within the team. I mean, it's one of our values. Like, you, yeah. you know, you can't teach without trust is, is, is one of our values. Um, the, other, the other one of our values is act like you don't know it all. <laughs> and so this idea of like, you know, argue, argue like you're right, but listen like you're wrong. And, and, and I think, I think we, we practice that pretty well, you know. Um, we put our ideas forward with passion and gusto, uh, but then we, we zip our mouths and we listen um, as, though, as though we're wrong uh, and, and, and we, we listen for respectful dissent. Um, and so I think, I think as a result, um, and then we, and we celebrate it when, you know, people have the confidence and the courage to, to kind of call out, like call each other out. Like I just reflected... This morning, we do a thing where we um, we do like an impact retro. So we go, last week, what were the meetings or the individual contributions that we felt like moved us forward the most in terms of our mission? Um, and one of the things that I reflected on this morning, uh, was we've got a kind of junior producer in the team and a bunch of times last week, I was trying to insert myself into certain meetings uh, in certain discussions because I was passionate about, you know, the piece of work. Um, but she kind of confidently yet politely just sort of said, no, Greg, it's cool. We don't need you, you know. Um, and I really appreciated the fact that she did that because I could have just got in there and actually slowed things down or, or, or complicated things. Um, but she just she just said, no, we're, we're good. We don't need you yet. You know, just like stay away. Um and, and I celebrated that today, you know, I was like, that was awesome. We need to make sure that we've got the, the confidence and the courage to be able to, to do that for each other because otherwise we'll find ourselves in unnecessary meetings or, you know, just in, you know, getting in each other's way. Um, and so I think it's just one of those things where with culture you kind of get what you accept um, and you encourage what you call out. And so it's it's just calling out those things that you, you want to become kind of more of, the way that we do things around here, um, uh, you know, making sure that the, the, the wider team know that that's the stuff that's to be yeah. celebrated. So what do you, uh, sorry, firstly, I think that just says so much about the culture of your workplace that somebody can turn around to their boss and say, look, it's all right, Greg, we're good here. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. I think I would like to say that I would respond to that really well, but I think inside I may be <laughs> There may be a uh, conflict of my own ego there, but I think it's really wonderful that somebody can say that. That's it's fantastic. And so in terms of considering like what leadership is then, um, what do you see your central role um, in the organisation to be? Yeah, um, I think, you know, early on in my career, I would have defined leadership as going first, embodying how and imparting why. Uh, 
But I think now I'd say that leadership is primarily concerned with cultivating ecosystems and not managing programs. Right. Uh, like leadership at the end of the day is influence, uh, but the job of a leader and my job in particular at Creatable is to influence culture, which is the way that we do things around here. Um, but it's, it's paying particular attention to the ecosystem. And that's tough because you've got to constantly pay attention to an ecosystem, whereas a program can be left alone a little bit, you know, it can kind of run itself. And so, um, and so, you know, just, just like a gardener is constantly kind of ten, tending to the, to the, to the garden, you know, like, 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 and, and all the, the, the yeah. ecosystem that is kind of going into the growth of these plants. That's essentially what kind of leading an organization is like really um, mm. requires constant attention. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, I don't necessarily have the answers to these questions I'm asking you. I just think it's interesting to hear, um, to hear your view and to hear your perspective. So thank you so much for your vulnerability. Um, Greg, I do want to be respectful of your time. So I've just got a couple of, uh, a couple of questions for you and then we'll talk about where people can find out more about the amazing work that you're doing. Um, what do you think the current COVID-19 pandemic has taught us about the way that we do uh, schools and the way that we uh, implement learning systems? And are you confident that we can learn from these lessons? Yeah, this is a big question. Um, you know, education is so much more than content and information. If it wasn't, Zoom, Zoom lessons and worksheets would have worked much better than they did during yeah. lockdown. Um, education is deeply human, and I believe it happens in the relationship between teacher and student. Yeah, uh, it's skills, not content, and and we actually really need teachers to contextualise those skills, model them, and create environments for students to practice and improve. Um, and so I think I think the COVID helped parents realize the significant role that teachers play in the life of their, mm. you know, kids development, you know, um, uh, I think, I think that, I mean, that's, that's definitely, I mean, at least in our household, you know, that was really kind of brought home. Um, but I think at a, maybe at a system level, COVID presented schools with maybe a new challenge and that was how do we plan in a volatile environment where things can change in an instance? Yeah. Um, like how do we navigate an uncertain future, you know, because we just didn't know when kids were going to get sent home and kind of what was happening. It was really hard to plan. Um, now, a lot of the companies that we work with have a long history in being able to do this. Like they started as startups and, and, and they're, they're constantly having to plan um, and navigate in uncertainty. Um, they've had to in order to survive, but bureaucracies and kind of well-established institutions definitely have a harder time. And so I think moving forward, learning how to do this better will be a, a big challenge for schools moving forward. How do we plan um, uh, and navigate kind of an uncertain future? Um, and how do we teach our skills, our students the skills to be able to do that for themselves as well? Yeah. yeah. Do you think that we will uh, 
as education systems um, jump back to old habits or do you think we can actually learn um, some valuable lessons from this time? Um, I think I, th I think we'll try to jump back to old habits, but I don't think they'll work anymore. Um, uh, and so I think we're going to be forced to evolve. Um, hmm. uh, and, you know, I, I mean, I genuinely believe that to, to the degree that we can get industry and education working more closely together, like at the same table, to kind of equip students with the skills that they need to navigate this uncertain future. I think to that degree, um, we can innovate um, and, 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 you know, really, yeah, evolve. You know, the education system has evolved in the past. Like it hasn't always been this way, you know, um, uh, and, and, and it can evolve again. Um, uh, but I, I think that it's evolved really well in the past when, when, because here's the thing, right? Um, society, the needs in society um, change, and therefore industry um, has to change in order to meet those societal shifts. Um, and as industry changes, it looks to education to evolve in order to prepare uh, the workforce of tomorrow with the skills that it needs. Um, and so, Industry and education have always worked together. They've been in lockstep before. I think the only thing that's different today is the pace of change is now happening so much faster. And so what's happening is a, there's a, the lag between the two. It's just, just getting bigger, you know. Um, uh, everyone's trying to move forward, um, but it, it's the pace at which different um, entities are moving forward that's the issue. And so I think by getting education and industry kind of working closely together and, and maybe learning from each other in, in a mutually beneficial way, um, I think we can shorten the lag between the two um, to make sure that, you know, students are equipped with the skills that they need to succeed when they leave school. Um, yeah. Because, you know, the, the, the future of work is rapidly evolving and the criteria for success is shifting. And so we're going to have to evolve um, as, as, as an education system in order to meet the challenges of, of tomorrow. Yeah. And Greg, I think your perspective um, uh, as an industry representative is so, so important. We need, my view is that we need more voices like yours to help us do our job. And we also need, I'd imagine, you would need voices like ours to be able to do our job better. And so I'm really excited to have these discussions about uh, with you because even though you're not you didn't become a teacher or you haven't necessarily had extensive uh, periods inside the classroom that's kind of the point we need to have people that are not part of the system so to speak to be able to help us change and to be able to make a difference in the lives of young people so I'm hugely grateful Greg for the work that you're doing Incredible Future is doing um, to help bridge that gap and also to support uh, some of the learners of the future. Um, where can people find out more about you and the amazing work that you're doing? Where can people get in touch with, with you? Yep. So if you want to learn more about um, Creatable, um, you can head to our website, uh, creatablefuture.com. Um, the reason why the reason why the future's in there is um, we believe at the end of the day that a better future is creatable but that better future starts with a better education. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of why we exist. 
Um, so creatablefuture.com, uh, if you want to learn more about, um, you know, what we do for teachers yeah. uh, and school leaders. <clears throat> but personally, um, you know, I'm on all the socials, LinkedIn, Instagram, yeah. Twitter. Um, so Greg Atwell's, uh, uh, you'll be able to find me on all of those. Fantastic. Well, Greg, like I said, I'll make sure I put all of the resources and things that we talked about in the show notes. But um, I'm hugely grateful for you taking the time to talk with me today and also for the amazing work that you're doing uh, in the educational space. So, uh, so thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we can continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.